again, everyone, and welcome back to The Bar. The Bar on Healthcare is a podcast produced by the Aon Health Solutions Group, focusing on developments in federal and state health and welfare law and their impact on employer group health plans. I'm J.D. Pirro of the Legal Consulting Group. And hello, everyone. I'm Carrie Willis, also with the Legal Consulting Group. If you've been listening to The Bar on Healthcare, we're happy to have you again. If not, please feel free to make us part of your regular feed. Just search for The Bar on Healthcare on any of the streaming services where you normally get your podcasts. Then subscribe, tell your friends, and please leave us a kind review. And JD, The Bar is open. Come on in, your favorite spot awaits, although we understand why you might just stick to club soda and crackers instead of your favorite beverage and appetizers. It's the post-Thanksgiving week here at the bar, and speaking for myself here, I have to implement a zone of, let's just call it caloric abstemiousness before heading into the December holiday season. But as for our post-Thanksgiving menu, we are going to focus on two developments in the healthcare arena that... uh, haven't gotten all that much publicity lately, but that could have some long-term implications and even some short-term implications for employers. Carrie, what's the first topic that we have on our holiday agenda here? Yeah, so taking a little bit of a different tact from our last few episodes where we've gotten pretty tactical about specific compliance initiatives, today we're going to talk about more policy-related issues. And the first topic that we haven't talked that much about recently, and that's healthcare coverage that's been purchased through the ACA public exchanges. So according to official reports, 16.4 million people signed up for healthcare coverage through the ACA ACA exchanges for 2023. And you know, JD, back when the ACA was passed, there was a lot of concern that the ability of individuals to enroll in the exchanges may cause employers to drop employer health care coverage. But we haven't really seen that happen over these last 10 years. JD, what do you think accounts for the resiliency of employer-sponsored health care coverage given that competition with the ACA exchanges? Yeah, you're right, Jerry. I mean, you know, despite the predictions of of gloom and doom back when the ACA was passed, the percentage of employers offering healthcare coverage has really stayed fairly constant over the past 10 years. Now, now I think there are a couple of factors that go into that. First of all, as you point out, there are the increased subsidies that, you know, were passed as part of COVID and certainly continue on now. But even with those increased subsidies, I think you take a look at the tax advantages of employer-based healthcare coverage and compare them to the subsidies, you still have a situation where those tax advantages of employer health care coverage, you know, the old code section 106, they're still greater for most people than the subsidized health care coverage that's offered in the exchanges. I think I saw the cutoff point as, you know, maybe you have to earn below 50 or $60,000 in order for the subsidies to really mean more there. Second, I think, you know, the exchanges have, you know, continued. And, and although, you know, the premiums have gone up, they've, they've stabilized somewhat in the last few years. And I think one of the ways they've done that uh, is controlling their premiums through these narrow networks of providers. Uh, And although those help to control the costs on the exchange side with the individual policies, uh, those can be a disincentive for employees who may not want those that narrow network of providers. Yeah, I think that's a fair point, although it is interesting to note that for the first time, insurers in the exchanges will have to include mental health facilities, substance abuse disorder treatment centers, and rural emergency hospitals in their provider networks. But your point is a good one. We're still seeing more narrow networks of providers in the exchange coverage. 
and you know the increase in benefits there, as you point out, we don't know how that's going to translate into increased costs over the next couple of years. So that's something we'll be looking at. But I think also in terms of you know why employer healthcare coverage has remained resilient despite the competition there, I, I think a, a big factor really, not just in this, but in public healthcare policy was the whole COVID-19 pandemic. When that hit, the government really leveraged the delivery of COVID treatments and supplies and services through employer healthcare coverage. I mean, Kerry, you know, just not to dredge up bad memories, but you remember those the couple of years of, you know, passing, you know, the CARES Act and FICRA, and I forget all the acronyms now. They just, they get together with, you know, acronyms like MRNA and things like that. But, you know, the government really looked at the employer healthcare market as being, you know, the possibly the main factor in which they dealt with the COVID pandemic. And as a result, millions of people really made sure to retain their healthcare coverage during this time. I mean, you remember those, the, the COBRA coverage had to continue, you know, for a period of time after that. You know, I think that more than anything else, you know, really kept the uninsured number from increasing and also made employees and employers realize the value of, of employer healthcare coverage. Yeah, there's no doubt that the ACA exchanges have also succeeded in reducing the number of uninsured. In fact, enrollment in the ACA plans and Medicaid expansion, according to HHS, that more than 40 million people enrolled in both of those programs up from earlier in the decade. And during the current enrollment season, there's been an increase in the number of first-time enrollees as well. Now, keep in mind that the increase in subsidies that were expanded and extended after the uh, American Rescue Plan Act and the Inflation Reduction Act only go through 2025. So it will be interesting to keep an eye on this and the enrollment in the exchange plans to see if those increased subsidies do go away, how it impacts enrollment. Well, you know, that 2025 is going to be such a big year because you've also got the uh, the tax cuts uh, from uh, the Trump administration also expiring around that time. So, yeah, you're going to be really looking at, you know, how temporary are these temporary tax changes? But I think with, with all this, you know, the, the trend of employers trying to leverage, you know, healthcare exchanges, there there is, you know, some evidence emerging. Maybe that's possibly the case, at least with respect to the public exchanges. The HRA Council, which is a, a nonprofit pro-HRA advocacy group, says that in, an increasing number of smaller employers are offering access to, to the public exchange plans, the individual policies on those exchanges, through these individual coverage HRAs. And individual coverage HRAs, this is a, a regulation that was promulgated a couple of years ago. Uh, these are tax-free accounts that employers use to reimburse employees for buying individual healthcare policies from the public exchange. Now, Kerry, as we said, you know, this is something that, you know, we contemplated back when the ACA was enacted. Were employers going to be start leveraging the public exchanges and exiting the business of offering and managing group health plans? We've got this mechanism now, which permits that to happen. Do you see this as a trend that's finally coming to fruition? Not really, at least not today. And it has a long way to go if it's going to become a prevalent form of coverage in the marketplace. And there's a, a lot of reasons for this. First of all, as I said, I think our experience has been with our clients that we haven't really seen a lot of clients go down this road to offer HRA 
funds for their employees to buy coverage in the marketplace. And part of the reason for that is this mechanism. It's called the Individual Coverage HRA or ICRA. There are very specific rules that go around if an employer wants to offer an an ICRA, and it's very inflexible. It it was designed to avoid employers putting their more high-risk, healthcare risk um, employees into the public exchanges and keeping the healthiest risk for themselves. But by that measure, it means there are very specific rules that employers have to follow if they do want to utilize an, an ICRA, and those are pretty difficult to get up and running. Yeah, I won't say those are a straitjacket, but certainly they are you know, fairly rigid in terms of, you know, you have to offer it to a, a broad variety of employees. You know, they have to, they have, there are specific rules that have to be followed there. Once we've taken clients through that, you know, I, at least my experience, I'm just speaking anecdotally here, I don't see a lot of enthusiasm for those rules, you know, and also, you know, a lot of multi-state employers really, you know, want to be sure that they have access, that employees have access to it, to a broad range of providers. So, so at least now, at least with the, with, you know, the regs we have now, I'm not sure I'm seeing that, you know, trend continue. I agree with what you just said around the ICRAs. But there's also an HRA for small employers. So those are employers who have fewer than 50 employees. And these are called a Qualified Small Employer HRA or QSERA. And the rules for a QSERA on who you have to offer it to and how much you can put into it vary even more than the ICRA rules. Although I will say, and JD, you can disagree with me as you were inclined to do, but I do think that for smaller employers, a QSERA has been a better mechanism than an ICRA has been for larger employers. No, I think you're I think you're absolutely correct. And there, I think the rigidity and the inflexibility of these ICRA rules, which don't make them very attractive to larger employers, I think for smaller employers, they they really aren't they don't make much of a difference because this is going to be the mechanism by which you offer healthcare coverage. So yeah, we'll offer it to everybody uh, and we'll subsidize that coverage and we'll put them onto the exchange. So yeah, I can see, you know, in, in the small employer market, this really beginning to, to, you know, maybe not take off, but at least there's, you know, there's some taxing onto the runway, let's put it that way. For larger employers, you know, I think, you know, the maybe one, you know, thing that might cause it to, you know, expand in future years is if we continue to see healthcare inflation continue down the road. But healthcare inflation has been, you know, fairly bad the last few years, and I haven't seen, you know, a lot of employers go to that. But I guess, I guess we will just have to see how this all turns out. Yep, agree. And then another issue that's lurking in the near future for employers is the future of the Medicare trust fund. The Medicare trustees currently project that the Medicare program will be unable to pay full benefits starting in 2031. Now, you might not think that the medical program, the Medicare program has much of an impact on employers, but actually it does. And JD, can you talk a little bit about how this will impact employers. Yeah, and the Medicare trust fund has been, you know, something that you know kind of reminds me of the of that doomsday clock. Uh, you know, they used to have, you know, one minute to midnight during the Cold War era. We're always, you know, one minute away from the Medicare trust fund running dry. But it is a, a fairly big public policy problem, and I think the solutions that are talked about really, you know, do have an impact on employers. I mean, first and foremost, we know that any attempt to address this insolvency issue by cutting Medicare payments to hospitals and providers 
inevitably that's going to result in cost shifting to employers and employer healthcare plans. This is something that, that we've always been aware of, even you know back when the in the DRG days when they were threatening, you know, would annually threaten to make cuts there. That, that's the bad news for employers that you know they're going to shift this onto you know onto the employer community. Uh, the good news is that the cost shifting isn't likely to occur, at least in the short term, because you know I think both political parties agree. They're not going to address this issue as we head into the 2024 election season. The Biden administration made some proposals in its 2024 budget. They were going to increase the 3.8% investment tax only on incomes over $400,000. They're going to raise that to 5%. They were going to dedicate any savings in the Medicare drug negotiations to the Medicare trust funds. I, those ideas are not going anywhere in, in this Congress. So I don't see you know, that Biden administration proposal getting any traction. On the other side of the aisle, though, since repeal and replace imploded, the Republicans haven't gone anywhere near the issue of health care. There have been three presidential debates the last couple of months. I think there was one question on health care. You contrast that with what's happened in you know, just about every election before this. I will say this, the one area where there is movement on this issue is with the PBM legislation that we've discussed, the prescription drug legislation. So that's one area where healthcare has been, you know, a maybe it's too much to say here, maybe a bipartisan issue. That, however, does not address the the Medicare issue that you know has been the subject of of the trustees and the Congressional Budget Office. You know, I don't see I don't see a lot of movement on that. You know, on, on that front. I think you're absolutely right that the cuts on payments to doctors and hospitals isn't likely to result in cost shifting right away because, you know, we're unlikely to see that happen. I do think employers have to keep an eye on what the lower payments for drugs under the Medicare Part D program may do with respect to cost shifting and the prices that employers are going to pay for drugs in the future. So I think that cost-shifting concern is pretty clear and is going to happen before we know it, or at least it's something to watch pretty quickly. Yeah. Uh, and I notice also a strange trend here as we talk about this, that you and I have both been saying, you know, using the phrase, I agree and you were right, an inordinate number of times during this conversation, usually more than we do. So it might be just the holiday season, maybe that we're turning towards that. So uh, before there's a disagreement on that, I think maybe we ought to move to last call. Sounds good. <laughs> when I was a kid growing up in Larchmont, New York, I would often spend my weekends at the Larchmont Public Library, perusing the bookshelves, checking out various volumes, everything from Tolkien's Lord of the Rings to Golding's Lord of the Flies. And I always tried to return the books on time so as not to run up that nickel a day late fee that I had to pay out of my allowance. Sometimes, though, I would forget to return that book, maybe for a few days, maybe for a week, but 90 years? Well, the New York Post reports that a copy of Joseph Conrad's 1925 book, Youth and Two Other Stories, was returned to the Larchmont Public Library just a few days short of 90 years after its due date of October 11th, 1933. It was the longest checkout the Larchmont Public Library had since its opening in 1926. The overdue fine that the patron had to pay, the library's maximum charge of $5. And the library wants its patrons to know it's still missing a lot of books from the high school's summer reading list. Carrie? 
So between you agreeing with me quite a bit today and not using last call uh, on this post Thanksgiving week to talk about football, Wait I'm not sure that that I is really I you. Agree with you. I said you agreed with me. <laughs> I, I, I'm just surprised we didn't have to suffer through yet another football related last call. <laughs> yeah. um, but in any event, that's our report for today. We'd like to thank our producer, Don Moorhead, for making us sound better than we deserve. From all of us here at Aon, I'm Carrie Willis. And I'm J.D. Piro. Thanking you for your time this time. And until next time, the bar is closed. You've been listening to The Bar on Healthcare, an Aon podcast. Aon is not engaged in the practice of law. The information in this podcast is not intended as and should not be considered legal advice. Please consult your own legal counsel to obtain such advice. Mm-hmm.